I had no idea I was going to go that long on part three. I also wanted to go ahead and give you part four for sticking around and enjoying as much of this as I have. But before we get into it, I wanted to kind of like, I guess, break it up a little bit. And I was wondering if I was like, damn, I might get flagged if I play a song, but this isn't monetized. And so long as it's not monetized, then they can't make money on it, any money off of it. So I'm going to play one of my favorite parts for one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite British groups. You know, actually, I'm starting to think Britain, UK does um, duos really, really well. Yeah, they do. Um, this is a song by a group called Flowetry. And this is one of their less known songs. Not sure why. I don't know why it hasn't been on many out on many like playlists or things like that. And I think this is gonna go really well into I should actually kind of play it like halfway through the uh episode <laughs> because faith doesn't really become a part of the conversation. Yeah, until about a third way down my notes. But I wanted to break it up. Am I going to combine these two parts? I might just. Or maybe I'll just leave them independent. Nah, I'll do this. Uh, we started the song with the last one. Let's start this song. Or let's start this particular one. The song as well. Great song called Half Faith. So make love and be patient. Can't hold it back no more. My tears overflowing, my head still feels sore Since the day you've been gone over time I tried to forgive myself Could you forgive me? Could you stay with me? Part four, um, we talk about the actual practice of love. And in part four, I'm not going to lie, I was really excited to see. Uh, I was really excited to see that title because I was like, "Oh, perfect! We're going to get a prescription. We're going to know exactly how he thinks love should be practiced and what we can do to resolve this issue and this lack of love in our current culture, or at least in our current social um, interactions with each other." But no. It's not exactly the case, but uh, let's start after this. So in the practice of love, he talks about what love requires. And Eric Fromm thinks love requires discipline, concentration, patience, and what I like to call supreme concern. Discipline, of course, is really difficult for modern man in Western culture, right? Uh, we're plagued by this inability to cultivate self-discipline. Uh, might be might be a subconscious push against the rut- routineization, the routinization of life. Everything is so scheduled, especially the eight hours that we spend at work. And it doesn't make the rest of life worth it. But parts of songs like like this does. Hey, 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 
I'm even trying to talk faster so I can actually like mix the song in with that part. But nah, it's probably gonna end beforehand. I love this song too, and I have to stop uh, whenever the the hook comes in because it's just it just wow, it's one of those songs that really are touching for me. Well, he talks about um, in the book at page 100. It says, "Without such discipline, life becomes shattered, chaotic." And lacks in concentration And funny enough Concentration is the very next um, Most important um, aspect In the practice of love And that is just as difficult as discipline You know Culture does not encourage Focus and concentration A distraction Is that we're always consuming And then he has a great example Of smoking That I'll talk to you Right after this part of the song Made a great uh, comparison to smoking And how smoking is like one of those Really fulfilling um, Consuming events And I really didn't understand why Until he broke it down He said Smoking is one of those symptoms Of this lack of concentration It occupies the hand, mouth, eye, and nose And then I was like wow it's It keeps you so engaged It's so involved That yeah um, I can see why that is something A, that's so hard to, to quit And B, even if you don't smoke tobacco The literal act of smoking um, Is hard to cut It's hard to quit uh, The third um, requirement Of the practice of love Is patience In a western culture Especially these days Patience is absolutely not encouraged um, it is not sought after The exact opposite um, Quickness Is encouraged Quickness Is sought after uh, it, It's valued Anything that saves time is valuable But the book says Yet he does not know What to do With the time he gains Except kill it Oh We're killing so much time We're killing time We're not putting it towards Any kind of like Development or growth Or I don't know. I don't know how to I don't know how to resolve that in my own life. Outside of love, there are so many hours of the day and I feel like I'm wake I'm awake and available for these hours, but certain things just take up so much more of your time than you plan to or you don't plan on um being where you are at this time, you know? I really struggled with I cut the first part part 3 at a great time for me to go out dancing, but I know that this is a priority. I really want to get this out to you and not only get it out, but I really want to express it. I want to produce this. Well, I want to give you the ideas that I've really been working over and the flow of being with you right here, right now takes precedent over um, something that I do enjoy, something I am very passionate about, but is uh, ultimately not more of a priority in my life than giving you consistency in these Small Chop Podcast offerings So here we are The fourth The fourth requirement Of the practice of love Is supreme concern Is how I have it written And this is the art Okay If art If not is of supreme concern Or importance to the person That student won't learn That student won't ever become a master They may become versed But they'll never become a master they become a 
he likes to call a dilettante, a dabbler, or a non-expert. Somebody who knows enough about it to sound like they know what they're doing, but has never been able to master it because they haven't put effort or they haven't made it a supreme concern of their life. Finding what the supreme concerns are has been a trip reading this book. This book reminded me that my narcissism is preventing me from learning love. And how we talked about in part one, knowledge and effort are the only way you're going to master any art. And if love, the art of love, is of importance to me, then I absolutely need to step out of my way when it comes to learning love. Um, My narcissism is preventing me from being more objective and not seeing the actions of others directed at me. That, (laughs) maybe that has to do with like solipsism as well, right? Solipsism is the philosophical um, idea that you are basically in a self-generated video game and anyone that you interact with, because you cannot prove without a shadow of a doubt their existence in the same manner or in the same um, con- with the same confidence that I can prove my my own. It's as if they're a figment of my imagination, a creation of my mind in order for me to live whatever story that I want to live. And in that fact, they're not actual people. And I'm doing this all on my own, doing this all by myself. One of the most important parts of the practice of love just like that song said, is faith. And so often faith is uh, likened to uh, religious experiences, um, the hopeful idea that there is a hereafter that we get through by, uh, what? how do we get through? We get through by doing what needs to be done according to the instructions that we're given. Uh, but this faith has nothing to do with that religion aspect, the religious, the religiosity of uh, religious faith or Christian faith. This book goes on to talk about rational vision and likens it to a scientist that has a goal before they start out to prove with experiments. It's their hypothesis. I think rational vision is a hypothesis of life. You can say, hey, you know what? I can make a quarter million dollars a year and then in a few years. And I think I can do that by developing, creating or teaching this. And then your hypothesis becomes the constant development. Excuse me, not your hypothesis, your experiments become the constant development um, and the um, making of supreme, uh, supreme concern uh, that which you busy yourself with in order to achieve that goal a quarter million dollars. This can absolutely be applied to life. Having a loose hypothesis of where I want my actions to lead me. Adjust according to the results of those experiments. On page 113 of, uh, of the book, it says, Rational faith is rooted in an independent conviction based upon one's own productive observing and thinking in spite of the majority's opinion. Super important to have your own faith that makes sense to you about what you can achieve and how your life can be, how you can love, how you can create community, how you can create success, but ultimately how you can um, 
I love the term uh, unfold, right? I think of, I don't know if it's a Japanese lily or a lotus, a lotus, right? Uh, the way that that flower grows, grows it's, it's almost like a Brussels sprout, which the leaves are layered upon each other. And the opening, the unfolding um, happens layer by layer. And I think having faith, rational faith, and what you can accomplish is equally as beautiful. That form of faith stuck out to me. The form of faith that stuck out to me was the faith in one's potential. In the dating market, especially as you get older, you hear a lot of coaches and in, in interviews and, you know what I mean, just people's experiences is like, don't date the potential of a person. Date what they're actually doing. Date who they actually are at this moment in time. And well, yes, that is very important to see um, how they're living their life and what they want in their life. I think this is the first time that I'm hearing the faith in one's potential as something to pay attention to. The book likened it to a child's faith in the ability to walk and how determined they are and how often they fall, backslide, hurt themselves. <clears throat> how many times it takes them to fail repeatedly before they finally get it. And I thought that the, um, the commitment that that child has to walk was a great example of the commitment that we can have to improving our Faith in ourselves and each other. It's not as easy, especially when you're dealing with adults. But it can be, I would imagine, I would imagine even more fruitful, more rewarding. It feels good to hear that potentials is something worth having faith in. The book says, the presence of faith makes the difference between education and manipulation. Education is identical with helping a child realize his potentialities. The opposite of faith is manipulation, which is based on the absence of faith and on the conviction that a child will be right only if the adults put into him what is desirable and suppress what seems to be undesirable. How many of us has grown up in, have grown up in that environment? And again, this is, this is not new age. That's what's so remarkable about this book is it doesn't feel... This book was, you know, I got the book right here. Let me see. This book was published originally. Let's see what the individual public date, published date is. This is not a recent book. This isn't a new age coming out in the 80s. This isn't A Course in Miracles. This book was originally published in 1956. This book is giving us Ideas, considerations that are extremely applicable to the ways we're living and loving right now in the 21st century. Having a child does not mean you have a blank canvas. Having a child does not mean you get to 
live vicariously through them. A child is an unfolding of a person as well. A child has their own likes, their own dislikes, their personality, their attitude, their gifts, their ways of seeing the world. And all that needs to be cultivated within reason, of course. Structure absolutely must exist. It's the difference. Let's say like a morning glory. A morning glory is a plant that is a vine. And if that vine has nothing to hang on to, that vine just kind of sprawls out. It's not very beautiful. The flowers don't get to... Um, just the whole... Yeah, the flowers don't get to face in the direction that's best for them or... The whole plant just, it looks so much better when that plant is on a scaffolding, when it's on a wall, when it's on a fence, when it has structure. I think the same is for children, for sure. The same is for humans, for people, no matter what age. Structure is absolutely necessary. And that faith in the other is necessary. That faith in that child's enfoldment, that faith in whatever that child has been born with is all it needs to be successful producing their creative expression, what they're here to do. And that guidance, those limitations, those rules are absolutely a part of that child's upbringing. But when there is no faith in that child and when a parent believes that they need to suppress what they feel, what they deem is undesirable in that child and input impart to him, put into him what they feel should be expressed, that's a big problem. That's when a child is no longer a child, but a robot. And you don't need to have faith in a robot. But because that robot would definitely be easier to raise, it can be seen as the better alternative. It can be seen as the better option. Hmm. Wow. Being a parent isn't easy. I think that's the biggest reason why I haven't been a parent yet. Knowing, I don't know what it takes. I really don't. I don't know what it's like to be um, starved of sleep for months. But I do know the same love that a child is given, that adult needs as well. It doesn't stop because of age. The needs of that adult, the needs of that developed child are um, very similar. The developed adult, rather. The needs of that developed adult is very similar to the needs of that child. That love, support, affirmation, discipline, um, leadership, or guidance, rather, is all still as important at 40 than it is at 4. One thing that isn't helpful is force and the need of force. It can be psychological force. It could be actual force. But the belief in the use of force demonstrates a lack of faith. Not having faith in the future solely because of present conditions is a very limited and unproductive way of seeing the world. The book says there is no rational faith in power, force. I think about Alan Watts had a 
great uh, lecture that was uploaded to YouTube where he states how inaccurate it is for the parent to expect love from the child. You ought to love me because I brought you here. You ought to love me because I put food on the table and clothes on your back. You ought to love me because I've given you this life. And that can't be further from the truth. A child owes that parent nothing. Teaching a child that they're obligated to love outside of effort seems very dangerous. Seems very uh, totalitarian, if I could venture to say. There's no need for anybody to think that love should just be given because of what? Because of because of duty, because of fulfilling you know obligations from your choice. No, I don't. I don't think that force and love, or force and faith, force and love can can exist. But I like how this book uh, included faith as a necessary component in the practice of love, and having faith in the process of the unfolding of that person and the relationship. Extremely invaluable. The book says all human endeavors that begin in faith usually fail or become corrupt when they rely on power. Again, harking back to part two where we talked about the mother goddess and how instrumental she was for the development of human humans. She was all love, unconditional. There was no need for her faith. There was no need because her love was unconditional. It felt like her faith was her love. The way that no matter what you did, that you would have that grace bestowed upon you from that mother goddess. Her faith wasn't necessary. But that changes when we got into the like the father aspect and when we're really striking out on our own and looking to be fully realized people. I think that faith is uh, very new to us as a species, as a collective unconscious. And we're looking to become more mm, apt at bringing that faith into this world, into each other. And separating it from force, separating it from power. Faith and power are not mutually exclusive. Excuse me. Faith and power are mutually exclusive. If one needs power, if one seeks power, it's because one has no faith. If one has faith, one needs no power. I think of the pandemic and how it moved from faith in our governments, from faith in the information that we were given um, the beginning of March, that whole first year, and how that went to force, how that kind of, um, and I think as soon as it needed to be enforced, 
was when a lot of skepticism came out. And a lot of truth came out as well. The, the numbers were being faked. Um, people that di- died of gunshot um, wounds were given COVID tests. And if they had COVID or any you know semblance of COVID, whatever, then they would be marked as dying from COVID, which ran the numbers up, which ran the paranoia up, which just made this whole debacle unnecessarily exaggerated. Our faith was lost in our governing body and they resorted to force and force just made them lose even more. So it did last a couple of years, but I don't think it helped any of the relations when it came to subject governance, um, bureaucracy and, and, and the serfs, (laughs) whatever we are in this culture. The book says faith requires courage. It says, quote, the ability to take a risk, the readiness even to accept pain and disappointment. Whoever insists on safety and security as primary condition of life cannot have faith. I remember being in Guatemala. Um, my friends were sailing and we pulled up to Rio Dulce in Guatemala because it was a, a hurricane hole. As a, Was it during yet? Yeah, towards the um, beginning of the hurricane season. We decided to hole up in there. And I met another sailor, and we talked about relationships because whoever I meet, that is always a topic of conversation. As I look through my like blogs, I start really understanding this fascination with love that I've had for at least 10 years. And in our conversations, he brought up the idea of being even-keeled and how much easier managing his life is by being even killed, evenly killed. Now he doesn't want to feel the highs because that means he'll be, um, he'll be vulnerable to the lows. And he wasn't interested in relationships because he didn't want to experience either. He would love, love the highs, but he knew they came with the vulnerability of lows. So he said, no, I'd rather be neutral. I love my peace. And I think peace may be one of the most cowardice ways of living. I was talking to a friend yesterday, in fact, and he was saying that once he started living on his own, once he had his own space, He thought he was going to go crazy, start dating all kinds of women and bringing them home and just having a time of it. But he says he values his peace so much that he's not even interested in dating. He'd love to date. He'd love to have a significant other. But the act of putting yourself at the risk of dating, at the risk of rejection, putting yourself out there. That was so unattractive to him and that was going to disturb his peace so much that he hasn't hasn't been interested in, in making the in taking the plunge into the dating pool. And I don't think that's what we're here to do. We're not here to live peaceful lives. I think back to some of what I've learned from Jordan Peterson. And I don't necessarily know the person, but I know the philosophy. And one thing Jordan Peterson says that sticks with me is we're not here to be happy. We're not here to be, we're not here to like have fun. 
I think we're here to be evolved creatures and we're here to learn as much as we can, not only academically or scholastically, but we're here to learn the human condition. We're here to be part of this um, phenomenon that is the human experience. Now, those weren't exactly his words, but I think the unfolding of us completely or as much as humanly possible is the goal. And that should be really highly regarded, respected and revered. That should be of ultimate importance. Because at the end of the day, what else do we have? Bank accounts? Esther Perel says something that always sticks with me. The value of one's, how does she say it? It always sticks with me and I never know how to word it well. I want to say the value of one's life. But the value of one's life, I guess, is directly related to the value of their relationships. Or the joy or the, oh, gosh, scratch that from your memory. I can't believe I'm butchering that right now. I have it written somewhere. But the, the value of one's life is directly related to the value of their relationships. Something to that effect. <laughs> I took a little, I was a little defensive when it came to that uh, that idea of risk and safety because I've been told in relationships that it is up to me to make my partner feel safe, feel safe enough to do X, Y, and Z. And I don't know if this is the same. Um, maybe I'm kind of convoluting ideas. But when I'm in a situation, I think vulnerability is extremely important. And making you f- safe enough to be vulnerable doesn't feel vulnerable. <laughs> vulnerability is when you're at risk, right? So reducing the amount of risk for someone to be vulnerable doesn't quite add up to me. I think the vulnerability is when they're are risky situations where you don't know how someone is going to take the information you're going to present or how they're going to take um, the criticism that you have for them. But you're willing to do it anyway, both because you want to um, develop as a person or unfold as a person, and you would like for that other person as well to develop and unfold. Now, whether it's coming from a place of hurt or a place of mutual respect, a place of negativity, or a place of you know growth potentially. These are all in the communication. I think they're all intertwined into the communication or the relationship that you have with a specific person. But it is of ultimate importance, I think, to know that there is vulnerability when it comes to relationships. And is it your partner? And you know, not necessarily know the answer to this, but ask the question amongst ourselves: Is it? important for one person to make the other person feel safe at the beginning of the relationship at all in the relationship how does that work i'm still navigating all of this because the prescriptions that we've had in the past don't necessarily work for us in this digital age there are timeless books and offerings like the art of loving and yeah there are ways universally 
that help us as animals, as creatures. But as we're evolving, as we're moving towards a different form of relationship where everything seems to be on the table, everything is negotiable right now. Where is the, I don't want to use exchange again because I'm trying to get away from that. But where is the perceived value of for that partner that is working hard to make their person feel safe? Where does that... What is that return on investment? Oh, gosh, so many business terms, but that's if we live right now. Oh. I wrote that question down a couple times. Is it my job to make someone feel safe in a relationship? Does that safety come with time? Or is that my job? What's the salary of that job? What are the benefits? If I don't choose that job, then I will want to know the perks. If that is not something that I'm working towards, striving for, for whatever reason. If that desire for my partner's safety isn't um, paramount to me, then what makes me want to change and make it a priority, I guess? The practice of faith and courage requires me to look at my life, see where faith has been lost. Faith in myself, faith in the guiding forces of my life, Faith in my religion. Um, it's really important to see where that faith was lost, to see where it was compromised, right? The book says to look through the rationalizations which are used to cover up this loss of faith. I thought that was huge. And it made me think about a couple of conversations that I had about um, how I feel in relationships, how I feel in dating, how I feel like effort is number one. Um, is is the best uh, characteristic or you know um, thing? I don't know what else to call it. Thing that I like in relationships. Uh, it's super important. how I've talked to myself or how I've convinced myself to live a life. I think is very, very important to live a life of love specifically. How I've chosen to interact with people. And if they're not kind of playing my game, then you know I'm not playing. I use the boat analogy all the time. It's like, I would love a first mate, but there can't be two captains. And I'm definitely the captain of my own boat. My boat is going a specific direction. But I know that I've probably rationalized a lot of areas in my life where I've lost faith. Especially when it comes to dating. And that needs to be reexamined for sure. The book says that our fear of not being loved is actually our fear of loving. Not being lovable can kind of be fixed. Because you can examine the person, figure out you know, what they love about you and then, you know, ratchet that up. And I think the true vulnerability is loving. Being somebody who actively engages in love for love's sake, for the sake of the unfolding of that other person. To love 
means to commit oneself without guarantee. Love is an act of faith, and whoever is of little faith is also of little love, page 118 says. And that is where the real risk comes in. That real uncertainty, that real lack of guarantee doesn't necessarily come in being lovable or being loved because people, wherever you are, can just love having you around, can love being in your presence. But to actually actively, consciously love either your partner or your community, to put effort into learning them, to showing them your love, Without a guarantee of it being reciprocated. Nah. That's real risk. The book says, if one is not productive in other spheres, one is not productive in love either. Love is action. Love is productive. To be engaged in life is to have the potential to be engaged in love. As I venture on this entrepreneurial endeavor, or at least just a couple of side hustles, there is a real desire to produce and not for production's sake. The reason I've been so intentional and um, focused on providing my feedback for a book that is this powerful, this impactful is because I want my production to really mean something. I want my production to be as timeless as the information that I have consumed in order in order to make this happen. I have faith that it will be that. And I need to have faith. I have a good friend who's been an entrepreneur for a while. And he tried to get me to look at the situation that I potentially want to put myself in. And he says, worst case scenario, lose your job, your side hustles don't make any money. What do you do? And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to have to buckle down and maybe crash on a friend's couch or get a job that I don't want to get to dig myself out of that hole. And he allowed me to think completely different about that situation. He told me there is no plan B. He told me that idea, strike that out of your mind. Going to sleep on a friend's couch, getting a shitty job. No. And in so many words, he was telling me to have more faith. Have more faith in the life that I know will develop me, not only as a business person, but as an unfolding in this time that we're in. So I've changed my answer and say, worst case scenario, no money. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to find a way to continue the life that I know is best for my unfolding. To avoid the easy route. To go the way that stimulates me in ways of creativity, that stimulates me when it comes to that nervousness. He was telling me, hey, you know what? You never really get rid of that fear. I imagine maybe once you get to a certain level of success, maybe it dissipates some. But that fear of, hey, if I'm not if I'm not getting business in the next three months, these next six months, I'm going to have to really make something happen. I'm really going to be in a precarious situation. But I've learned to have more faith now. 
I've learned to know that plan B is plan A. I don't quite know how that translates to romantic relationships. But my endeavor in reading this book and subsequent books is to really do this life of love better. To not repeat mistakes. To make new mistakes that I can learn from. To have new vantage points. To be a little bit more objective. To be other focused. To take that risk of giving the love that I, the little bit of love that I think I sometimes have. Because that's the only way you can receive love. You have to give it first. And it's difficult for those of us who weren't in or didn't grow up in um, loving households. On a previous podcast, I compared myself to a plant that was in great soil. I got a lot of sun, but didn't get a lot of water. Whatever drops of moisture in the morning time, whatever runoff, whatever sneeze that somebody sneezed, whatever piece of snot landed on my leaves, I had to really save those droplets. I had to really use those, really focus on them. That makes you starved for water. And yeah, you've survived, but you haven't really lived. Versus other plants who get water constantly, who don't even need the water. They just let it pass by because uh, they'll get water again. It's very different. Um, And learning to love from that point of view is painful. It's rough. And it doesn't serve anyone. And now that I know that there there are actionable items and ways that I can love better, Absolutely want to go that route. This next topic in the book really blew my mind. And I spoke earlier on the podcast about fairness. And the book says fairness, meaning not to use fraud and trickery in the exchange of commodities and services and and in the exchange of feelings. I've always said being fair is of utmost importance to me. In social situations especially, I hate seeing unfairness. If someone is, you know, selling a drink, have that price being different for somebody else because they're perceived to have more money. Or cutting a line. Or just all kinds. Yeah, a fairness to me is just uh, super important to uphold. But this book made me realize that fairness has nothing to do with love. Fairness is the product of capitalist thinking, market-based thinking. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think fairness with this capitalistic thinking has kind of bastardized or confused that golden rule. The book says the golden rule means to love your neighbor, that is, to feel responsible for and one with him, while fairness ethics means not to feel responsible and one, but distant and separate. It means to respect the rights of your neighbor, but not to love them. Page 120. That really put into perspective how inadequate my practice of love has been for not only myself, but for my neighbor. 
I have been focused on their rights that I didn't even notice the distance, the separateness. I have not loved them as one with me. I have not been responsible for my neighbor. I've only upheld the courtesies, the social constructs of of rights. And that probably is where I could make my biggest amendment, adjustment to this life of active and conscious loving. To be able to practice it in a way that puts me and in more of a vulnerable position to date more vulnerably. Yes, to date honestly, yes, to date openly, but to also add a level of vulnerability to really get to a depth that makes not every, that makes, you know, interactions more special, more unique to give you the ability to learn a little bit more of yourself, um, to be a little bit more selfless than you Otherwise probably could be This book has been One that I probably will read Once a year I would love to update My understandings I would love to know what I've Incorporated in my life And where I kind of faltered I would love to keep you updated with different versions of my life through this book, my understanding of love and my participation in it. These chops haven't been all that small lately, but there's just so much to share in this book. And I didn't want to um, drag out the end. Yes, you have two separate episodes for parts three and four, but you'll both be, you'll get, you'll be getting both of them this week. I really appreciate you staying with me on this journey. I wish I could hear more from you. I don't even know if I have comments on, but please comment. I'll definitely be posting these on my social media as well. You can reach me at effabl.co. That is the Instagram handle as well as the website, effabl.co slash podcast. This is one that's going in the history books. This is one that I look forward to returning to. Look forward to returning to. I have so many notes. I have so much that I haven't spoken about. And I highly suggest getting this book. It's a book that I probably want to start a a book club with because these ideas, these concepts just feel so resonant with me that I want to link and connect with the people that share that same resonance. I appreciate you staying for this offering. If you've made it to the end, you're a trooper. I look forward to talking with you. I look forward to just seeing your play. Even if you don't want to com- you know, converse about this or interact, I'm happy that you're gaining from my production, from my offering. Be more than fair. Be a little bit more vulnerable. And let's all take risks. This is Small Chops Podcast Offering.